All right, let's open our Bibles, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, uh, and just as you're turning there, let me just encourage you, let's, uh, let's come to this time this morning in God's Word with expectation. Uh, let's come to this time with an anticipation that uh, God has something that He wants to say to all of us, but He has something very specific that He wants to say to us this morning uh, by His Word, through the power of His Spirit, and, uh, and that he's going to do that as we carry on our series this morning in 1 Corinthians. So we're in chapter 1 today. Um, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it might be one that you're familiar with as well, is Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 and 9. And of course, Isaiah was a prophet who was used by God um, to go to the people and pronounce God's judgment if they would not turn away from their sin. But Isaiah also painted this remarkable picture of God's love for his people. And, um, and how God would send a savior who would come and rescue the people from God's judgment if they would turn away from their sin and trust in him. And so right after Isaiah paints this amazing picture of God's love through the death of a savior, he calls the people again to turn away from their sin and to trust in God who is uh, this example of supreme compassion to them. And that's when God says this through Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now when you read that, if, if you take a minute just to step back from that and consider that, this is a truly remarkable thing that God says. Because part of what he's saying here is that he would provide salvation for his people in a way that his people would never expect. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. And, and for as much distance as there is between heaven and earth, so is there such a great gap that exists between the way that we might do things and the way that God will do things. And all throughout salvation history, um, all throughout the story of the Bible, uh, this has been God's modus operandi, you could say. This is the way that God operates. It's his strategy. And, and he has purposely, he has intentionally, and he has supernaturally worked in ways that will eventually make it obvious to those who have eyes of faith to see that this work has been done by God alone, and he deserves all the credit. Now, I draw your attention to that because um, that's essentially the message that Paul's communicating to us this morning in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 to 31. And we're going to read through that passage in just a minute. But for now, I just want you to notice the first five words of this section. Verse 26. Look at the first five words of verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling brothers. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, consider your calling. Now, we know from the context here that when Paul talks about calling, he's not talking about the job that you're working at. He's not talking about the neighborhood in which you live. He's not talking about any of those things. He's talking specifically about the nature of our relationship with God. He's talking about what God has done through the atoning work of Jesus to bring us into this relationship with him, the work that God has accomplished through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, and specifically how the ways of wisdom and the ways of power and the ways of the world have been proven to be empty, that God has actually worked in a way that is completely contrary 
to the ways of the world. And so now Paul considers that he carries on this thought. He expands this thought in verse 26 by saying, brothers, consider your calling. Consider your calling. And the way that he writes this in the original language, it means think about this. And not just think about this, but keep thinking about this. Don't stop thinking about this. Keep considering the moment that you were saved. Don't forget the lengths to which God has gone to reveal his grace, to show his mercy, to confirm his love upon your life. And he's saying, consider your calling. Keep thinking about this. Don't forget about this. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, consider your calling. Think deeply about what God has done for you to bring you into relationship with him. Now, I would submit to you this morning that um, this is actually more important than we might realize at first. Uh, not just for us as individual followers of Jesus, but it's actually, uh, I would say, really important for us collectively as a church to consider this because the Bible is teaching us here that uh, what God has done in us and what God has done for us to make us the church. And uh, God has been working on such a different level to accomplish this that it can be very easy for us at some points along the way to simply forget how foundational this is to our life together because the reality is, as we look around us, so much of our lives are built around performance and results and metrics for this and for that. Like, we see this in our jobs, right? You have to meet a certain performance standard. You have to get a certain result. That's actually why you've been hired. And, and so it makes sense to do that. But we see it at school too. And, and you have to get certain grades if you want to get a good job and, and if you want to keep going. And we have deadlines to meet. We have bills to pay. We have goals and dreams for our families. And, and sometimes it feels like those who have more than we do or those who are smarter than we are end up getting farther along than we ever feel like we're going to. And so many of those things depend on getting results according to the ways of the world. And the reality is, if we are not careful, we can slip into that same mode when it comes to our relationship with God. That if we just do it this way with God, then we'll get that result for God. But the reality is what Paul's talking about here in this passage that we're going to look at is that when it comes to our salvation... And when it comes to the work that God has done to bring us into relationship with him, well, God has worked in a way that is entirely contrary to the ways of the world, which is why then Paul begins this section by saying, wait a second, just call a a spiritual time out here. And it's like, brothers and sisters in Jesus, consider your calling. Consider the the different way that God has gone about in, in taking you from where you were to where you now are in relationship to him. Don't forget what God has done. Keep thinking about what God has done. Keep looking at your life through the lens of what God has done for you because when you do that, it's eventually going to lead you to one very specific end. And we're going to get there as we make our way towards the end of this passage today. So with that in mind, let's have our Bibles open uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading. uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, uh, Lord, we uh, simply ask you one more time again, just now in the quietness of this moment, would you please uh, speak to us through your word, as you already have, but, but in this moment right now, Lord, I, um, I ask on behalf of all your people gathered here, would you give us eyes to see what we have not seen? Would you give us ears to hear what we have not heard? Would you give us wisdom to understand what we do not know? Would you fill our, our hearts with faith to believe that you are good and your ways are good and your word is good? And that your word leads to um, a fulfilled and satisfied life for those who will obey what you say. So Lord, we trust in you now to teach us again. Spirit of God, come and be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the main command here in this passage is in verse 26. At the very beginning, the Bible says, consider your calling. Uh, the question before us today is simply this, how do you do that? Like, what does it look like for you to consider your calling? What does it look like for you to, to think about what God has done to bring you into relationship with him and to keep thinking about that, to keep coming back to that, to keep filtering your life through the reality, through the lens of what God has done for you? Well, here are three truths for us to remember as we keep remembering what God has done for us. Three truths. Here's the first. Number one, you can jot this down. We are saved not because of who we were. We are saved not because of who we were. So the first way to consider your calling is to remember that none of us have anything in ourselves to contribute to our salvation. Or as the famous quote from Jonathan Edwards goes, the only thing that you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Okay? Beyond that, we don't have anything in ourselves to contribute to our salvation. So notice again verse 26. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now, it was all about wisdom in Corinth. We've talked about this a little bit before. They, they idolized wisdom almost above everything else within their culture. That was a very big deal to them. And so building up your storehouse of knowledge and then showing it off to other people was a very big deal in Corinth. And if you could show that you were wise in the world's eyes, if you could take A put it together with B, and somehow come out at the end with C, but then do it in a way that nobody else has done it, well, that would give you an elevated status within society. And that's part of the reason that Paul spends so much time here in this early section in 1 Corinthians talking about wisdom and the wisdom of the world. In fact, let's uh, skip back just for a minute to verse 20. Look back in your Bible just to help us reestablish some context here. Verse 20, Paul says, Where's the one who is wise? In other words, where's the prominent one? Where's the scribe? In other words, where's the educated one? Where's the debater of this age? In other words, where's the one who likes to show off the wisdom that they think they have? I mean, wisdom was such a big deal within this culture that, that it was all about this. And, and so if you were in this culture, and if you could convince other people that you were wise, then it would get you places. It would open up doors for you. It would give you opportunities that to that point in your life you had never had before. The problem, though, is that Paul says this next in verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
In other words, as he's looking across the landscape of the Corinthian church and realizing that wisdom was such a big deal within their culture, he looks at the church and he says, wait a second, not many of you have that. Not many of you have the wisdom that the culture celebrates. The kind of wisdom that was being elevated was one that eliminated God from the picture and they were putting all of their hope in the stuff that they knew. And the problem is that they didn't have that. Paul looks to them and says, you don't have one of the things that the culture says that you need to have in order to be recognized, in order to be accepted. Now, if that's not enough, he goes on in verse 26 and he says, not many of you were powerful. In other words, there weren't many of you in the church who had positions of authority or influence in Corinth. You didn't have a lot of people following you. He's saying, you weren't the leaders, you were the followers. You were not the ones who had the resources. You were the ones who needed the resources. Then he goes on one more time and he says, not many were of noble birth. Like there weren't a whole lot of you who came from famous families or you're socially well-connected or or you have an inheritance that's really big and one day that's going to come in really handy for the kingdom of God. Like, Like you just didn't have that. You didn't have the power, you didn't have the wisdom, you didn't have the nobility, you didn't have, not many of you had it. Now to help us understand a little bit of what he's saying, think about it like this. Check out these pictures up on the screen. Um, Even if you are the smartest person in the world, or even if you are the most powerful person in the world, or even if you come from nobility according to the world, now, let's be clear, we're not making any judgments on the hearts of the people that are up on the screen, okay? We're not, we're not going there. Um, but Paul's saying here, listen, that, that's what's important to the world. That's the standard that the world uses to judge whether or not you should be recognized, to judge whether or not you should be accepted. And so now he's looking to these believers in the Corinthian church and saying to them, listen, none of you would have been chosen according to those standards because you didn't have those things. And so he starts this section by saying, brothers, sisters in Jesus, consider your calling. Consider the work that God has done. And as you consider this call of God upon your life, as you remember that moment when God called your name and saved you by his grace, and as you remember that time when God opened your eyes to his love and his grace and his mercy upon you, and as you remember that, don't forget that you are saved but you're not saved because of who you were. You're not saved because of who you are. You're not saved because of what you had. You're not saved because of what you bring to the table. It's not because you have a PhD in this or or an MD in that or you've got some other letters behind your name. It's not because you have authority or influence within society that you could be really used for the kingdom. It's not because you have some lineage within your family and and an inheritance and nobility. It's, It's not because of any of those reasons that you are saved. What he's saying here is, listen, plain and simple, you are saved because of God. You're saved because of the work that God has done for you. So, so think about it like this for a minute. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, like just think back to that, that moment that you came to know him, that moment of your salvation, the moment when everything changed, everything clicked, everything became different for you, and just think back to that sequence of events within your life that led to that time. Like you look back in that, and God sent someone into your life at some point in the past, and they started sharing the gospel with you. 
They started speaking the truth of the gospel into your life. And as those people started speaking the truth of the gospel into your life, the Spirit of God then began to do this work of conviction within your heart. And as the Spirit of God started to do that, you started to see things differently. You started to hear things differently. You started to process life around you in a much different way to the point where then you begin thinking to yourself, hey, there's got to be more to this life. You start thinking to yourself, hey, I haven't been living this life in the way that this life is meant to be lived. Hey, look what God has done for me. Hey, now I'm seeing life so differently in a way that I have never seen it before. Hey, this God who created me loves me so much that he gave his only son to die for me. That is, like, does that sound familiar to anybody right now? Like it's this work that, that as the gospel is being spoken into your life, the Spirit of God does this work to convict you. And when that happens, God then is the one who gives you the ability to repent of your sin, to turn away from your sin, and trust then in Jesus so that you can be rescued from the wrath of God against your sin and be reconciled to him, to be made right with God. And so part of what Paul is saying right now is this. Listen, there is no amount of wisdom in the world And there is no amount of power within the world. There is no amount of nobility or inheritance or lineage within the world that is ever going to be able to do any of that for you. His point is to say, you are not saved because of who you were. You are not saved because of who you are. You are not saved because of what you have. You are saved because of God. You are saved because God loves you. Seriously, who is this for right now? Like, like I think it's for all of us on some level, but, but I'm coming this morning with some level of anticipation, expectation, like God's got to be doing something. God's got to be speaking to somebody specifically right now. Like, who is this for? Just think about this. It could be for a young person sitting in the room right now. And, and of course, you know, like you know on some level that your family's not nobility. That much is obvious, right? But, but you've been doing everything you can for as long as you can remember to get into heaven on the coattails of your parents' faith. And you're just hoping beyond hope that their faith is going to be strong enough to get you to where you need to be. And you're just hoping that it's going to work out in the end. Who's this for right now? Maybe it's for somebody here who's, who thinks that your power or your position or your status within the world is giving you some kind of inside track with God. But you got to understand, friend, that, that you are not saved because of who you are. You are not saved because you're a good person or you help, you help other people. You're not saved because you're generous or you give money to charity. You're not saved because you work hard to make up for the bad things within your life. You're not saved because you're slightly better than some other people that you know. You're saved because of God. Who's this for right now? Maybe it's somebody sitting here who's been a follower of Jesus for a little while. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a really long time and, and, and you've got this pattern of thinking in your mind and, and it's become more frequent and, and it's become so powerful than the way that you think that it's starting to drive the way that you live and, and the way that you behave. But you've got this pattern of thinking that says, man, if someone would just recognize me, Someone would just see what I have to offer and the wisdom that I have or the position that I hold or the resources that are mine. Like if somebody would just see that and recognize that and want that from me, then this life would be better and that things would be so much greater. Part of what Paul's saying here is is listen, God doesn't choose you because you're recognizable. God doesn't choose you because you stick out from everybody else. See, at its core, 
This is like a call for us to realign ourselves toward biblical thinking. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, consider your calling. Consider what God has done. Like God doesn't save you because of what you bring to the deal. God doesn't save me because of what I bring to the table. God's ways are not our ways, and and they are most certainly not the ways of the world. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, let your heart be filled with joy and worship and thankfulness this morning that God has saved you simply because he loves you. Which leads then right into the next truth. Number two, we are saved because God chose We are saved not because of who we were. We are saved because God chose. Paul uses this phrase three times here in the next two verses. You can see this. Maybe underline it in your Bible or highlight it. Notice this, verse 27. He says, but God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose. What is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Don't miss this, loved ones. We are saved because God chose. The idea of God's choosing is that God determines to do something for his own reasons and to accomplish his own purposes. God determines to do something for his own reasons and to accomplish his own purposes. And he tells us what those purposes are in verse 27. Notice it again. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world, that is, God chose what is empty of wisdom and good sense, notice this, in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, that is, he chose what is powerless in order to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, that word despised there means to be considered as nothing, so in essence he's saying God chose the nobodies of the world. Notice, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Now pause there for a second. What does that mean? Because that's pretty amazing. What's he saying here? He's saying that God's going to take the nothingness of stuff that does not yet exist and use that to take the things that do exist and make them look like nothing. So God's going to take nothing to shame the things that are something. By the world standards. Like just, again, pull back from that for a second. Can you imagine yourself being one of these believers in the Corinthian church and and you're one of the first people to have this letter, uh, letter read in your presence and somebody's reading it, you get to this part right here and you're like, what? Like God's gonna take nothing to shame something? Like, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And then, can you imagine Paul on the other end of this tin can telephone, and, and he's like, exactly. Like, that's exactly what I want you to see. I want you to see that God's ways are not our ways. I want you to see that God doesn't work in the way that the world works. works. In fact, that's the whole point of the cross that we looked at in the passage right before this a few weeks ago. The cross looked like foolishness. The cross looked like weakness. The cross looked like shame to the world. And yet here we are now on the other side of the cross and we know that all of human history has been changed and so many of our lives have been changed because of that one thing that looked like foolishness to the world. Loved ones, let's not forget, God's ways are not our ways and praise God for that. When you think about this, 
Um, that's the way that God has worked all throughout redemptive history. Check out these verses up on the screen. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Moses is reminding the Israelites of how and why God had chosen them. And he says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Think about that for a minute. You were the fewest. Like You weren't the biggest. You weren't the strongest. You weren't the most powerful. You were, in fact, the smallest. You had the least. And yet God chose you. He goes on and says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God has done this. And, and we see again, God's ways are not our ways. Fast forward a little bit to the New Testament, to the time of Jesus, Matthew 11, verse 25. Jesus is preaching across several cities. He's calling people to repentance and faith. And he's pronouncing judgment on those who refuse to turn to him. Matthew 11, verse 25 at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You haven't made this known to, to the people who are the smartest according to the world standards. You've made it known to the people who know the least according to the world standards. And their lives have been changed because of it. Why? Because God's ways are not our ways. Fast forward again towards the end of the New Testament, James 2, verse 5. James is exhorting the church not to show favoritism to some over others and he says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? See the pattern here? God's ways are not our ways. I think of the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The only problem was Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. And when God makes a promise to you that your descendants are going to be that numerous, but you don't have any kids, that's a bit of a problem. And so Paul talks about this in Romans 4. He unpacks this whole thing, and, and he says this, that God is the one, notice this, verse 17, he says, God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. <laughs> that is awesome calls into existence things that do not exist. You could say that God called Isaac into existence as a fulfillment of the promise that he had made to Abraham. Like, loved ones, see this. This is the way that God has always worked. And it's the way that God always will work. We are the foolish. We are the weak. We are the nobodies according to the world. And yet, in his grace, God chose us. And by doing the supernatural work within us that only he can, he puts to shame all the standards of the world. It's interesting, that word shame shows up a couple times in, in those verses there. And that word, um, obviously it means um, things are going to come to nothingness. They're empty, they're worthless uh, when, when we try to get things from them that don't belong. But um, that word also has some eschatological connections, meaning this, um, that when we stand before the Lord Jesus at the end of time, when this life is all said and done and we are with him for eternity, all of the ways that we put our trust and our hope in the wisdom of the world, in the power structures of the world, in the resources of the world, on that day when we are with Jesus, they are going to show themselves to be completely and totally empty. So the question then becomes for us, what are you living this life for? 
What are you putting your hope in right here and right now? Knowing that one day, that day is coming when we're going to stand with the Lord Jesus. We're going we're to see him face to face and then we're going to look back on this life and the life that we lived and the decisions that we made and the priorities that we set. How are we living this life right now in light of that day? Are we putting our hope in the wisdom of the world to get us through the circumstances that we're in? Are we putting our hope in the resources of the world to help us in ways that we think we need to be helped? What are we trusting in in this life? Because when we get to that day and we stand with the Lord Jesus, all of the things of the world, all the ways of the world that are apart from Jesus Christ are going to be showing themselves to be empty and nothing. I wonder um, about this on another level as well, that as we consider our calling and, and as we think through the implications of that, I wonder how many of us are afraid, how many of us are intimidated, how many of us feel incapable on some level when it comes to sharing the gospel with somebody else. Like we know in our mind that Jesus told us to do that, um, not out of duty or obligation, but really out of gratitude for everything that Christ has done for us. But, but if we're honest, if some of us are really honest with ourselves, many of us are really honest, it's like sometimes we just feel buried under the weight of our own inability to do that. And so we clam up when the opportunity comes up. And, and maybe even for some, like, we've just kind of totally turned ourselves off to looking for opportunities to talk to other people about Jesus because fear has so gripped our hearts for so long that, that we've just turned it off. It's like, I'm not, even, I'm not even going there. And part of what we see here in this passage is that while the way that God works is utterly profound, the gospel itself is beautifully simple. In other words, God did not need our wisdom or our power or our know-how before he chose us and saved us. And God still does not need our wisdom or our power or our know-how to convince somebody else that they need to be saved. Because at the end of the day, that's not our responsibility. It's not, our, it's not in our ability to convince somebody else that they need to be saved. That's God's department. He has to grant repentance and faith. We share the gospel. We proclaim the good news. But at the end of the day, God is the one who does that work. And so as gospel opportunities come up or as we bring them up, we rest in the profound way that God works. And at the same time, we move forward with courage in the simplicity of the gospel. To know even as those words roll out of our heart and off of our tongue and into the ears of unbelievers who need to hear them, that God then, in the mysterious ways that he works, will take that simple gospel message and accomplish whatever it is that he wants. Like, just think about it. It has to be an act of faith for us to let those words come out of our mouth, to proclaim those words to family, friends, loved ones who don't know Jesus. It has to be an act of faith for us to say those words and then trust that God's gonna take the brokenness of the way that we say it and the ways that it kind of gets mumbled and jumbled as it comes out of our mouth and we walk away and hours later we're thinking to ourselves, man, why didn't I say that? Like, I could have said that so much better. It would have made so much of a difference. Like, like, even as that happens, even as the words come out of our mouth, to believe then that God is going to take the brokenness of the way that we present it, and he's still going to be able to bring about what only he can do. And so we sit here and we ask ourselves, why? Like, why does God work like that? Well, that leads us to point number three. Truth number three. We are saved so that God gets all the glory. So that God gets all the glory. Now this is where it's all been leading. So notice this, verse 29. Paul says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts about this life, boast in Jesus. Let the one who boasts about what they have in this life, boast in Jesus. Let the one who boasts about how much they know and the reputation that they have and everything that they've been given, let them boast in Jesus. We are saved so that God gets all the glory. And and notice this now, that God is glorified when we respond in three ways. So see this first. Number one, God is glorified when we realize that we have nothing in ourselves. We've already talked about this a little bit, but that's verse 29. Paul says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Just think about this. There's going to be a day when we're in the presence of God and not a single one of us is going to boast about our ability to save ourselves. We're going to realize with tremendous and eternal clarity that God has done this and there's no question about it. Right? God is glorified when we realize we have nothing in ourselves. Reminds me a little bit of the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. God called Gideon, the Bible calls him a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of strength, um, to be an unlikely deliverer for God's people. And, and God chose to work in a very unusual way. So he told Gideon, Judges 7 verse 2, God says, the people with you are too many for me to give you uh, to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. In other words, what God is saying there, he's saying, you have too many soldiers to fight this battle. You think about that, right? Going into a battle, you have too many? Like, that doesn't make sense, right? And yet God comes to him and says, you have too many soldiers to fight this battle, and the danger here is that your army is going to go, and you're going to fight this battle, but then you're going to come out of the battle. I'm going to give you the victory in the battle, but then you're going to come out of it, and you're going to think that it was your strength and your might and your ability that saved you. And so from there, God winnows down this army from more than 30,000 soldiers down to 300. 300 soldiers also that God's power would be put on display so that God would be the one to get all the credit. Now, all of that with Gideon was one of many foreshadows throughout the Old Testament of something greater to come with Jesus. And Paul sums up the work of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of of God, not a result of works, not a result of your own ability, not a result of you being a good person, not a result of you trying really hard to get in God's good books, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Like we have nothing in ourselves to boast about before the Lord. Why? Because it's the Lord who saved us. It's the Lord who rescued us. It's the Lord who has done this good work by his good pleasure. It's not because we did anything. It's because God has done everything. God is glorified when we realize we have nothing in ourselves. But then this, uh, second, God is glorified when we rejoice because we have everything in Christ. Notice here, notice the first four words of verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. It says, and because of him... And because of him, because of God, 
because God has saved us, because God has rescued us, because God has done this work in our lives in a way that we never could have brought it about. It's because of God, he says here in verse 30, that we are in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 30 again, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now here's the thing again, for for the Corinthian people at this time, in this context, in this culture, the pursuit and the possession of wisdom was everything. Because as we mentioned earlier, if they could get this, and if they could prove to others that they had this, then it would give them some kind of elevated status within their society. But Paul now is saying to them, listen, wait a second, spiritual time out here. Understand that if you are saved... If you are in Christ Jesus, then you already possess the truest and most purest form of wisdom that there is in Christ. You already have the wisdom that you need. And here now, Paul says, is where that wisdom leads. First of all, it leads to righteousness. Verse 30, he says, um, that means that, that the wisdom that you have in Jesus helps you to understand that you have been made right with God that you have been declared righteous in God's sight, that the status of your eternity has been changed because you have been justified before God. So that wisdom that you have in Jesus helps you understand that you have been declared righteous. That wisdom then also leads to sanctification. And in this particular context, Paul's not just talking about our purity in God. He's also talking about our position before God. We are holy. We are set apart to God. And that wisdom that you have in Jesus helps you understand that you have a new standing before God. You have a new identity because of what God has done. And now we live out of that identity. Just think about that for a minute. So many people in our culture longing for identity. So many people within the church, so many Christians craving for identity, craving to understand who am I really? Where do I fit into this world? Where do I fit into the bigger picture of life? What is this life about? What is my life about? Where do I go? What do I do? Who am I really at the very core of who I am? I know that God has created me in his image, but who am I really? What am I supposed to do? So many people craving and longing for this identity, and the gospel tells us over and over again, and the word of God is telling us right now, this is who you are. You have been redeemed by God. You have been saved by Jesus Christ by his finished work on the cross and because of that that totally changes your identity you now as a redeemed child of God as a follower of Jesus you have been set apart you have been made holy by God that's who you are you rest and you live in that but then that wisdom also leads to redemption verse 30 that that means that the wisdom that you have in Jesus helps you understand that you have been bought back by God from the power and the penalty of sin. This is who you are. This is who we are because of Christ. And and that because you have been redeemed by God, you cannot be bought back by anyone or anything else. Like, it's not like you're a birthday gift to God. Right? You can't be exchanged. You can't be taken back because you're not the right size for God. Like, it doesn't work that way. You have been redeemed by God. God, and there is nothing in this life, nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. True wisdom in this life is not defined by ability, power, knowledge, or status according to the standards of the world. True wisdom is defined by a proper understanding of what God has done to give you life. 
that's wisdom. And, and when you filter your life through the grid of that kind of wisdom, that's the life that God blesses. That's the life where God leads. That's the Psalm chapter one kind of life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. That's the life that God blesses. Start of verse 30, he says, you're in Christ. You're in Christ because of God. And you have all of this now because of him. Awesome. And finally this. God is glorified in us when we remember that God deserves all the credit for our salvation. Verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You ever had that friend... um, who just couldn't stop talking about their kids. You know, the kind of friend who, who thinks their kids are the greatest, their kids are the cutest, their kids are the smartest, kids are the best, right? Um, I won't ask how many of us have been that friend. Um, we're a little biased, that's okay. But think about this for a minute. What would it be like if we were known as a people who could not stop talking about Jesus? Like, one of the things I love about our church family here is that there's a lot of you in this church family who do this already. Like, like this is the language, this is the lingo, it's the way we talk because we truly believe it. It's genuine, right? It's coming from the heart, and, and you're like, man, the Lord did this for me. And, and I saw the Lord do that for me. And, and hey, let me tell you about how I saw the Lord at work this week. It's going to blow your mind. Like, I love those kind of conversations. I could sit and listen to those kind of stories like any day of the week, twice on Sundays. And, and at the same time, like, like some of us talk like that and, and there's some of us right now who are kind of maybe slinking down in our seat a little bit because we're like, man, I don't know if I could talk like that. Like that just kind of sounds weird. It kind of sounds foreign to me. I, I just don't know if, if I could really do that. It, it just kind of makes me feel a bit uncomfortable and never talked like that before. But, but just, just consider for a minute what Paul's saying here. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast about anything, if we're going to brag about anything, if we're going to talk and talk and talk and talk about anything, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about what Jesus has done for us. Let's filter life through the lens of Jesus. Think about it. What would it be like if we were known across Brantford as the people who couldn't stop talking about Jesus? And not for our sake, not to make much of who we are, because as soon as we do it for that, then we totally miss the point of this passage and we totally miss the point of this message. We're not doing it for us, but to make much about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and that he can do the same for anyone who will trust in him. What if, what if you were known? Hey, that's the guy. That's the lady. Man, she just can't stop talking about Jesus. We're saved, we're given breath to live so that God gets all the glory. Listen to this from Jeremiah 9. This is the passage that Paul's referring to here and we're gonna let this have the final word today. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts 
boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We're saved not because of who we are, but because God chose. And we're saved so that God gets all the glory.